Here is one of a series of talks by spiritual leader Lola McDowell Lee, spanning two decades from the early 70s through the 90s. Lola was a Zen Roshi, whose Rinzai lineage included Dr. Henry Plutov and renowned Zen master Shigetsu Sasaki. Lola was a religious scholar as well as an ordained Christian minister. While the talks are focused mainly on Zen and Buddhism, Lola drew on many spiritual traditions, including those of Jesus, Plato, Lao Tzu, the Hindu Vedas, Meister Eckhart, and Gurdjieff. Well, I'm going to keep up with this for a little while longer. I guess until all of you vanish. <laughs> Hmm? One unmoving that is swifter than mind, that the gods reach not, for it progresses ever in front. That standing passes beyond others as they run. In that the master of life establishes the waters. That moves, and that moves not. That is far, and the same is near. That is within all this, and that also is outside all this. But he who sees everywhere the self in all existences and all existences in the self shrinks not thereafter from aught. He in whom it is the self-being that has become all existences that are becomings, for he has the perfect knowledge, how shall he be deluded? Whence shall he have grief who sees everywhere oneness? It is he that has gone abroad. That which is bright, bodiless, without scar of imperfection, without sinews, unpierced by evil. The seer, the thinker, the one who becomes everywhere. The self-existence has ordered objects perfectly according to their nature from years sempiternal. <clears throat> and glancing through uh, the book the other day with the Upanishads by Isherwood, Nikhail Ananda, Swami Nikhail Ananda and Isherwood, this one little phrase all of a sudden popped out. Oh, self-forgetful one, wake up, wake up. Hmm? Self-forgetful one. Now, in the, uh, it's in the Shandogya Upanishad where the father, Udalaka, tells his son, Svetketsu, uh, that in the subtle essence, you know, in the little nothing of the seed, in that subtle essence, all things have their existence. That is the self. Thou art that. The individual Brooklyn, 
which is called Atman, Tatvamasi, thou art that. Hmm? No matter what we may think we are or who we may think we are, if we are thinking we are this and if we are thinking we are that, we are laboring with a deluded mind. This is what is called a deluded mind. We are believing that the images are real. Hmm? Delusion. No matter what country we may come from, no matter what language we may speak, all of us, that's humanity, a man, all of us have the same I. Now, at the very beginning of our standing out, that is our existence, huh? standing out from the background, no. we are engulfed by things. 10,000 things, they say in Taoism. We are engulfed with the many. We are engulfed with the multiplicity. We are barraged by the many. And little by little, as we learn to look around, we take them in. That is, we identify. People superimpose all different kinds of seeming understanding on that original I. In the beginning, the I was perfectly clear. But just as you add colors to water, you add things to this I, and then in place of, or you know, instead of maintaining an identification with that pure I, you look at yourself as a child, then you look at yourself as a man, or a woman, and uh, you know, you've added color. That's who I am. That's a deluded mind. You consider yourself belonging to a particular family. You are a brother or a sister or a mother or a father. You consider yourself to be intelligent or stupid or superior or inferior or a great personage or a small one, a virtuous person or a sinful one. If you study books, you consider yourself learned. And if you do not study anything, you consider yourself illiterate. And when anger and greed and attachment and desire arises, you identify with each and every one. And you feel that you are one with these emotions. These emotions are you. That's, again, a deluded mind. And some of these emotions you like and some of them you do not like. And we are identified with the body, and we are identified with the experiences of the mind and the experiences of the senses. And so we flounder through life caught in this net, you know, of worldly things. And we go through our existence becoming one thing, and then another thing, and then another thing, and then another thing, and never becoming what we are. Aren't you tired of it yet? Yeah. 
in the, the Puranas. Now, that's an old, 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 old book in India of their mythologies. Puranas, it's called. And uh, <clears throat> there's one particular story, which is about our identifications. Once upon a time, there were two demons, and one was named Shumba, and the other one was called Nishumba. The brothers. They had been given a gift that no one in this world could kill them. No thing in this world could kill them except each other. Now they were brothers and they loved each other dearly. The question of killing each other was just out of the question. So they began to think that they were above death. And as a result of this, they became drunk with pride. You know, when we were very young, death is so far in the future, it doesn't concern us at all. Hmm? Five years old, you think about death, not much. And certainly nothing to do with me. I mean, it's a long time before I'm old. See? And then as teenagers, you know, we're pretty drunk with pride because it's not going to touch us. Not yet. But anyway, Shumba and Nishumba, in their conceit, they're never going to die. They began to persecute others. They had no pity for others. They had no compassion for others. They would torment them in whatever way they wanted to. And the time came when the people could no longer take it, so they prayed to Lord Vishnu to save them. Now, in India, Lord Vishnu is um, the second of the trimurti, of the, their trinity. There is a Brahma and Vishnu and Shiva. Vishnu. Uh, anyway, they, they prayed to Vishnu to interfere and he is, you see, the preserver and the renovator. Shiva is the destroyer. Yeah. Now, Vishnu did hear their prayers, and he decided he would help them. But he also realized that no one could do away with Shumba and Nishumba, except Shumba and Nishumba. And he sat there pondering this situation, and in the midst of this pondering, he had a brainstorm. And he took the form of a beautiful woman. And in that form, he was so fascinating and so entrancing that everyone who saw him became bewitched. And he took a new name, which was Mohini, which means the one who infatuates. Mm -hmm. Now, in the form of Mohini, Vishnu descended into the forest where the two demons lived. 
and arriving at the demon's house, she sat down between them. And first she looked at Shumba, and then she looked at me, Shumba. And immediately, both of them fell in love with her. See? They forgot all about beating and robbing. All they could think about was Mohini. Mohini, will you marry me? asked Shumba. No, marry me, said Nishumba. And Mohini just laughed. She says, I can't marry both of you. I can only marry one. Well, which one of us will you marry? asked the demons. Well, I will marry the one who is stronger. And without another word, the demons began to fight. And they were so fierce and so powerful that the whole forest shook with their, the force of this battle. And they fought and they fought and they fought, but neither one of them could defeat the other. And finally, both of them just lay down and died. <laughs> yeah. And when Mohini now, she's looking at these two dead demons lying on the ground, and this thought occurred to her. Two demons died for love of me. How beautiful I must be. Hmm? Deluded mind. Huh? And she ran to the nearby stream, and she looked at her reflection in the mirror. And as soon as she saw herself, she became just as bewitched by her beauty as the demons had been. Wow, 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 how beautiful I am. I am so gorgeous. No one can compare with me. Hmm? Consciousness deluded with his powers, huh? Yeah, and forgets its true nature. Wow, you know? So, so this, this, the Supreme Lord, you know, becomes an individual soul, and the individual soul becomes the many. So fascinated by itself. See, Mohini was so fascinated by herself that she forgot she was really Vishnu. What a shame that such a beautiful girl as I should be all alone. Thinking to herself, I need a husband. And so she set off looking for the right man to marry. And she wandered from place to place and finally grabbed hold of somebody who agreed to marry her. In the midst of those all big wedding preparations are going on now, here comes this great sage, great sage Narada. Narada is, is, is renowned in, in India. Uh, he's a legend. He, he did live, but he must have been a tremendous man. Anyway, he arrived, and he took one look at Mohini, and he saw that this was Vishnu in the guise of a woman. And he realized what had happened. So, and so he went to her and he said, Look, if you were really a girl, it would be all right for you to marry this boy. But how can a boy marry another boy? Huh? Don't you remember who you are? You know, there is a saying somewhere, somebody says in the Bible, I think it's Paul, that there are no marriages in heaven. And people wonder about this. They were going to be with their husbands and their wives and so on and so on and so on for all eternity. 
but how can a boy marry a boy? Anyway, you know, in the Western mythology, we have a, um, a similar story in Narcissus. You know, he goes to the pond, and he looks at himself, and he falls in love with himself, and that's it, folks. Now, these are not stories from way out there. You go home and look in the mirror. Done the same thing. Exactly. Same thing. This is our predicament. We are the Lord and we have forgotten. We have become enamored of our image. Hmm? We are this great self trapped by the delusion of the ego. Trapped. Hmm? This is our state of bondage. And you know, we, I think we are all very familiar with the story of the little monk who goes to the teacher and he wants help. You know, he, he, he wants to know who he is and so on. <clears throat> and he asks him, you know, please help me to be released from my bondage. Bondage, came the reply. Who put you in bondage? There are so many things, <clears throat> such a variety of things that happen to us during our four score and ten. <clears throat> and we look back and we think, ah, this was a turning point. Hmm? And that was a turning point. <clears throat> that was a point of the utmost importance in my life. And that was my darkest hour. And that was the moment of my greatest happiness. Oh, yes. And see, we, we, we keep fluctuating between the great and nothing is going on. Important and nothing is going on. This moment of great importance, this moment of the darkest hour, how did it happen to come to you? Hmm? This moment of great importance that was the happiest in all your life, how did it happen to come to you? Hmm? Sometimes we try to figure out these things. And when we do, we sometimes come up, I mean, if we're really looking at it, we come up against some surprises. Yeah. And I think to me, one of the greatest surprises is that hardly anyone seems surprised by life, life itself. This, this total lack of regard, surprise. Oh, this is life. Huh? It's just all taken for granted. How often do you look at all this? You know, this world and yourself. That it is a mystery. That it is surprising. Everything in this is just simply 
Amazing. It's amazing. How come you can fall in love? How come you can fall out of love? How come you can feel pity? How come you can get angry? Is this not surprising? Where does all this come from? Where do I get this greed? I'm not that way. How can I be so selfish? I'm not that way. Where did it come from? Where, how does all this happen? And is it not a miracle that a seed becomes a tree? Hmm? Is it not a miracle that the sun rises, as we say, every morning? Hmm? And that it sets, as we say, every evening? And that the birds sing? And they're most noticeable in the morning when the sun rises? And when the sun sets, they're most noticeable. Huh? The miracles. Each moment, each step, we come across these miracles, and we don't seem to be surprised. You know, how come we're so blasé? We have received such gifts. We have a gift of laughter. The whole world is full of humor. Even my cat has got a sense of humor. She laughs. She plays. Birds do the same thing. You can see them playing out front. And the crows, you know, they're funny. And the world is full of love. And the world is full of goodness. And now, by goodness, uh, I don't mean... Uh, I'm good to you, you're good to me, uh, you do good things, I do good works, I praise the Lord in good works. I don't mean that at all. <clears throat> this goodness that we don't see because we are so engulfed in our own self-importance. Did I do this right? Should I do that? Maybe I should do this. I sure told that one where to go. No. Oh, they just don't understand me. No. Where is the goodness in these thoughts? No. Goodness, it's, it's like all of a sudden you hear a bird sing. And there's a kind of a, a flow between, there's a kind of a unity in your suddenly hearing this bird sing. Just, just that fleeting second before you begin to think about it. there That's goodness. <coughs> you see, a flower, that, that is a, a particular color, and the color kind of grabs you. And before you think about it, there is this goodness. And you, 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 you feel the bark of a tree. And before you think about it, you just feel... And this is goodness. Hmm? You look at the stoplights. The red is such a pure red. It's a goodness. It's a, just a pure red. It's beautiful. Hmm? It's a goodness. Hmm? Somebody called it, huh? 
This whole old world, you know, spins along with its miracles. And we see almost none of it. Isn't that a pity? We are so concerned with protocol. It's like the little story of the rabbi who was invited to dinner with his family. And the man of the house is tremendously impressed because, you know, this honor that the rabbi was coming. And he warned the children they had better behave very seriously while they were at the dinner table because this great rabbi is coming and they must put on a good performance. And during the course of the meal, if something happened and the children laughed. And so the father ordered them to leave. He had promised he would, you know, so he had to. And so they all rose, and the rabbi rose also. And he prepared to take his leave. And the father now is concerned, and he says, is anything wrong? Well, said the rabbi, I laughed too. <laughs> hmm? Yeah. <clears throat> Remaining still, it outstrips all activity, and yet in it rests the breath of all that moves. A little different translation. There are quite a few translations out there. Once you experience the, this unmoving in yourself, hmm, and then you will know that all of the activity in which you are involved depends upon that unmoving. And yet it itself doesn't move. It's sort of like we might say there's the action in non-action, or there's an effortless effort. There is the moving and the not moving in effortless effort. In the action, non-action, there is action, but no one is acting. Hmm. Or Bodhidharma's statement with which we are so familiar, if you just sit silently, and sitting in this great silence, doing nothing, Spring comes, and the grass grows by itself. Sitting silently, totally unmoving, <coughs> just sitting silently, doing nothing. Your breath comes, and your breath goes. Your heart beats. The little cells run around in the arteries and the veins. And the synapses continue. And you don't die. You're just sitting silently. And everything happens by itself. Hmm? Yeah. And sitting silently, thusly, doing nothing, this effortless effort, one begins to experience 
the hub of the wheel. Sitting silently, you become much more aware of the hub than of the wheel. If you're active, you remain on the wheel, going round and round and round. You know, it's a merry-go-round. We could say also it's a sorry-go-round. Hmm? Well... We cling to it. It's not always merry. It's sometimes sorry. And the wheel spins, and you cling to it, and it just takes you with it on all these many states. In all of our relations, you know, this oneness is the secret base. The oneness supports you as it supports all multiplicity. The true self is one and the many. The multiplicity is a representation of the one. The many are the becomings of the one. Now, there is a question in here, and it occurs to some people once in a while, and it kind of shows whereabouts they're at. In this multiplicity, in the 10,000 things, in all of this becoming, what do you think is the intent of it? What is the intent of the multiplicity? What is the intent of all this movement? Seems like there should be a reason for this motion, what do you think it might be? Hmm? Think about it sometime. Think about it and then let it go. This universal motion in which we have our becomings. See, there is this rhythm There is this flowing, there is this balancing, there is this enantiodromius, you know, there is the light and the dark of the Tao, you know, this mingling, coming together and then separating these two polarities. Symbolically, you know, this expresses the unknowable. The Tao symbol expresses the unknowable. Hmm? Yeah. Now, it has been said that every state of consciousness, and we have various states of consciousness, what I experience there is a state of consciousness. In every state of consciousness, of itself, in itself, that state, there is something in it that represents something that is beyond it. By that I mean that transcends it. Hmm? In every state. Every state of consciousness holds in itself 
something that transcends. So your everyday consciousness holds within it, your many, the many's of everyday, holds within it the consciousness of the one. And that holds within it the consciousness of no one. By that I don't mean nobody. I mean nobody, but nobody. No one. Huh? <laughs> now this <laughs> strange language. Huh? Universal motion <clears throat> has been called, and I used this term before, <clears throat> the play of divine consciousness. This is the play. This is called Lila. It's a woman, feminine. Lila, the play of divine consciousness. <clears throat> this movement, this universal motion, this play, adds nothing to that one. It is already complete. The movement adds nothing to itself, for it too is already complete. It just keeps changing, but doesn't add anything. There is this enantiodromius, but it doesn't add to. It just rearranges. And all of it existing for its own pleasure. This is the play of, you see. All nature existing for its own pleasure. Why don't we enjoy it? We're part of nature. What are you enjoying? Hmm? Are you enjoying your life? Are we really so busy trying to prove that the ego is right, that we can't enjoy? Are we so busy trying to prove that we are on the top of the heap? And then I could ask, what heap? Huh? What is so wrong about enjoying? We feel guilty sometimes when we do. Other people are, are sad and other people are poor. And even though I may be poor, I can enjoy a <coughs> birthday cake. I can enjoy getting up in the morning, I can enjoy going to bed at night, and I can enjoy everything in between. Hmm? Everything else does. The flowers enjoy themselves, they throw this fragrance out into the air, pure enjoyment, huh? And a bird sits up in the tree and goes, just enjoying itself, you know? And the cat looks at me with those big eyes and I go by, and this laughter in them. Hmm? Only man is saddled with the desire to prove himself other than this desire consciousness that we call ego. And it is he, and he is the only one that stands, as it were, and allows the pleasure of living, just living, to escape from him. It's like he's got a handful of sand and he dribbles it all out through his fingers. It escapes. Yeah. <clears throat> Part of it, I think, is that in this motion, this universal motion, and in our individual movements, 
you know. We have this idea of purpose. We have the idea of goal that we must reach. Well, that's okay. We should have some of these. I mean, without kind of Who would even try if we didn't a little bit? And yet we allow it to take the place of our being free and easy. I mean, if we're free and easy and say, okay, now what I want to do, what I would like to do is find out who I am. Now that's a goal. Hmm? How would you even manage to sit if you didn't have that? Well, at the beginning, we couldn't. There is a self-unfolding of man. Any given one and all of us. And in this becoming, this self-unfolding, in this becoming, the one, the being, is revealed in the becoming, hmm? in your becoming, in the midst of all your becomings, all of a sudden here is the one being. In our becoming states, in all of the conditioning in the psyche, we grasp at this idea of purpose. Then when this reflection in the becoming of a being is revealed to us and we begin to open our eyes and see, see we perceive then this unity that emerges out of the many and that perception changes the entire set of values that we have heretofore held in consciousness. Now, in this um, thought of the Upanishads, which I'm trying to present however well and or however poorly, and sometimes it's both, <laughs> we do remember that there are several ways of presenting things, of presenting thoughts. Uh, and we are at this moment talking about one viewpoint. Uh, because with each of the translations of the Upanishads, we could make a different interpretation. Hmm? Anyway, we're right now with this particular viewpoint because I happen to like this particular translation. Yeah. In this point of view, this particular way, consciousness is thought of as having seven forms, that is, seven aspects. And the Hindus call these seven aspects gods. They do with everything else. So they might as well with this, too. You know, everything is a god. Seven stages of consciousness, which make up actually one consciousness. One consciousness, and there are seven 
It's like one hand and you got five fingers, huh? Right. So we have these seven aspects descending from this pure being to the physical being. Yeah. And so we say there's unconscious, there's subconscious, there's self-conscious, there's objective conscious, there's superconscious, and there's pure conscious. Hmm? Now the interplay and the intermeshing between these forms of consciousness determines our activities. And our activities, of course, constitute our becomings. What activities you feel at home with, what activities you are drawn toward, and they come about, you know, in this viewpoint because of the weaving in and out of these various aspects of consciousness. It is the, uh, we could say, it is the universal motion in the individual movement rearranging itself. And we become something else. And then we become something else. And then we become something else. And yet, I remains I. Something does not move in all that moving. It moves and it moves not. Yeah. It's kind of like, in a way, I think this, there is a new thought out now. Well, I don't know how new it is, but uh, it can't be more than a couple of years old. That um, the um, synapses of the brain, you know, the nervous system of the, of the brain, uh, they're linking and they're not linking of these synapses is what produces a great deal of our illness. If they're not all complete, something happens, and if they are complete, something else happens, and which ones do and which ones don't, you know. <laughs> the way the energies of the brain, the left brain and the right brain, the way these energies come together and they mesh or they don't mesh or they intermingle or one jumps over the other or whatever, we, according to that, we are either in a state of well-being or we are ill. Hmm? Yeah. And so with the interplay of consciousness in its various distur dis various <laughs> various stages, <laughs> various aspects, <laughs> determines the individual activities, the individual becomings. And that removes it from the personal. You don't think, I did this, and therefore this is this way, and I did that this way. Naturally, though, we do remember that I did this, and it sits in there someplace in one of this state of subconscious. And that always this rising out of the unconscious is our self-consciousness. Rising out of the unconscious is our objective consciousness. And the idea, of course, is to make the unconscious conscious. You bring it all up. Oh, happy day.
Now, we have got a concept here now, huh? <clears throat> of ourselves to this universal. We are going to go from self-consciousness to pure consciousness to... something else again. Hmm? Yeah. And in this concept, now, and I remember we're going <clears> to, the whole, all of the consciousness is called cheat, huh? this aspect of the Satchitananda. Hmm? Sat, you remember, you can all tell me what Sat is. It's the essence of being. And cheat is the mind of this essence. And ananda is the bliss of this essence. Satchitananda. Now, the consciousness of the one, not separate from it, any more than your consciousness is separate from you. Hmm? How do you feel? Oh, yeah, it's all here, you see. Consciousness and feeling. Hmm? Nothing is separate. The consciousness of that one being, the being, being conscious, we call it cheat, and this is active in the whole universe. Now, this whole consciousness, these seven powers of the cheat, are spoken of in the Vedic tradition as the waters this flowingness in the Vedas is referred to as the waters. The flowing <clears throat> of consciousness in a human being, they speak of the flowing consciousness in the ocean of the heart. Yeah. The infolding and the unfolding and the infolding and the unfolding of the one in the many and the many in the one. This is the law of the eternally recurrent cosmic cycles. Now, it is established in the waters. It is established in consciousness. So, things, objects, are ordered perfectly according to their nature from time sempiternal. I remain I. Hmm? Acorn always gives birth to oak tree, doesn't give birth to chestnut tree. Things are ordered in this way. Wind is wind and sand is sand. Hmm? What is established in the waters, what is established in the essence, what is established in consciousness. Hmm? For us, you know, it's, it's, it's an ever-moving, changing existence, and it seems to be marked uh, by a condition of unstable harmony and it just seems to move between positive and negative forces, and by which I do not mean good and bad, or good and evil, 
but it is rather this positive and negative, and we look at it more in a chemical manner. You know, every electron, the negative charge, is related to so many neutrons, right? You rearrange the charges. So you got H2O and we call it water. And now if you only had one part of hydrogen instead of two, you would have HO, and you no longer have water. See, something has been rearranged in there. Hmm? You no longer have the same element, but you have not done away with the energy. Energy is still energy. And there are two poles, even in the atom, you know. There is the positive and the negative. These are the forces. And in the world of humanity, these two poles are sometimes called birth and death. And in between is all the arranging and the rearranging and the going of it on and on and on and on and on. Yeah. Life is a constant birth or a constant becoming, because we are constantly becoming something. I'm a little smarter than I was two minutes ago. I have become smarter. You see? Mm -hmm. All birth entails a constant death or a dissolution. This is Shiva. Yeah. It's a dissolution of what I had to become. And that must go in order to become something else. And I'm sure you've given this some thought at some one time or another, and also some thought to the many ideas and the notions and the states that have come and gone and come and gone and come and gone. They have been born and they died, or they dissolved. All that has gone on since you were born, huh? There is even a book written about it. Judith Viorst wrote a book called um, un, uh, no, Necessary Losses. Necessary Losses. Yeah. All that you have to give up. All that has to die in us. And this is the road to maturity. <clears throat> Just mature as, as, as a person running around this world, huh? And now what you have to do on top of that in order to mature as a human being, as that one, what all has to die, huh? It's going on with you all the time. And then we find people who can't give up something. Oh, I wouldn't give that up. I don't want to. Their desire is so strong that they can't give it up. And they can't give it up. They can't, you know? And they don't grow. They don't mature, you know? Death and dissolution. It's a necessary part of our lives necessary part of this stage of existence, this stage of death. Hmm? It is such, you know, in this world in which we exist, it has to be passed through and transcended. After all, what we see here is not the whole of us. What is the whole of you? Do you know? 
Hm. What we see and hear and think and feel is not the whole of us. Even though they are, we are the one who becomes everywhere the self. Now, in these Upanishads, we are taught of uh, the perception of Brahman. The perception of Brahman in the universe. And the perception of Atman in our self-existence. We are to perceive this Brahman so we are taught in the Upanishads as both stable and moving. We are taught to see it as eternal and unchangeable. And also in all changing manifestations of it. We are to perceive all things near and far. The, the immemorial past the immediate present and the infinite future as all happenings of the one. We are to perceive that one as that which exceeds yet contains and supports all the individual states everywhere as well as all universal states in the universe. We are to perceive it as that which abides in and contains the universe, the transcendental universe, the Brahman. Lord, the indwelling spirit, which is the object of all knowledge. And the realization of it is the way to immortality. But he who sees everywhere the self in all existences and all existences in the self shrinks not thereafter from aught. Subjectively, within, within you and within me, this great one that we call in this Upanishad's Lord, this Brahman, in you and me, called Atman, the unchanging existence of all that is in the universe. Everything that changes in us, our minds, our body, our character, our temperament, our actions, none of this is our real and unchanging self. They are only the becomings of this real self in a movement, whereas the real self moves not. In nature, all that exists, animate and inanimate, sentient and insentient, are becomings of that one self, one self of all. We are all the little pumpkins Hmm? 
All these differences are one undividable existence. The divisions are in the delusion. This is the truth, and they call it vijnana, this truth. And it is this truth that each of us must realize, not just think about it, to realize, to see everywhere this self. Everywhere this self, in all existences, to know what Jesus meant when he said, even though I go to the depths of hell, thou art there. So he shrinks not thereafter from aught. Thou art there. Yeah. All existences now are in the self. It all takes place in this one, unmoving. Yeah. Atman is Brahman. It's a big mystery, huh? <sighs> Indivisible being. Self-luminous shines by its own light. Everything else is reflected. It shines. It's self-luminous. Self-concentrated in consciousness. Self-concentrated in consciousness. Self-concentrated in force. You don't remember. Self-enlightened. Its existence is light and bliss. Satchitananda. It is timeless and spaceless, and it is above all free. You want me to continue with these things? I could do something else. Okie dokie, my mother was apt to say. Okie dokie. Now may the peace and the power that passeth all understanding hold us and keep us in the love of the Christ in consciousness while we are seemingly separate one from another. And I do thank you very much. If you find Lola's talks valuable, more will be posted in weeks to come.